Welcome to Pursuing Justice. We are um, focusing on a particular case, this series of programs, on Derek Williams' case. And what we have here is we have Derek's niece, Tawanda Means. Tawanda works with the Manatee County Schools as a graduation enhancement technician. She has 27 years of experience and she's getting her doctorate in educational leadership. So Tawanda, welcome to the program. I'm glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much and I'm glad to be of assistance to help you and assist you in any way that I can. Oh, thank you. All right, well, I, what I wanted to ask you, we just um, spoke to Derek Williams and um, as his niece, and a family member, you were able to observe the horrible miscarriage of justice in Derek's case. Um, can you, what was your reaction to Derek's wrongful conviction? Um, we were, I can, I can actually remember the day that he was in court and we were sitting there and when we got the verdict, we were told um, to stay quiet, that we could not do anything. Um, we were in shock. Uh, we were confused, we didn't understand, and we weren't allowed to ask questions for clarity or clarification on what um, the decision was based on or why the decision went the way it did. Hmm. And what, what happened after that, since you weren't really able to do anything that particular day, what happened following the conviction? conviction we were told to leave and to leave quietly and that's what we did we all my family we all left and we left quietly we were told by um, my uncle's attorneys that we would get information as to where he would be and what will be going on um, following that that time period so they didn't know exactly where they were going to have him stationed or uh, placed at that time so what what did the family do after that to try to to change the outcome of his trial? Well, we were once we found out where he was located, um, we started asking questions, um, started searching for um, things that might help us. But as time grew on, uh, we became weary that there was nothing that we could do. Um, we were told, as a matter of fact, we were pretty much told to leave it alone, that there was nothing else that we could do. Oh. Um, I have my aunt, um, which is um, Derek's um, sister-in-law, had heard about the Innocence Project, and she had talked to the family. She said she was going to submit a letter, and she said we would not, as a family, give up on him because he was a young man. Uh, we knew that Derek was not perfect because none of us all are. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But despite that, we knew that um, something was wrong, and we wanted to do all we could to help him. So my aunt, uh, Brenda Williams, sent in a letter um, to the Innocent Project, and that's how the whole thing with the Innocent Project got started. Right. But there was a big space of time. That letter didn't go in immediately, did it? The letter did not go in immediately. Um, the, in that lapse, in that space, was time when um, Derek's son um, didn't have a father. That was a lapse in space and time when Derek's father was ill. He became ill with prostate cancer. 
there's a time during that space where Derek's mother, which is my grandmother, um, became ill as well. She got hurt and had fallen on um, the city transit because she didn't have transportation to drive. We were um, unable to visit Derek because of the location that they sent him to. They sent him so far away. We just right. spent a lot of time with him. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And the yeah, phone calls were few and far between as well. Few and far between. So it, it was a very difficult set of years until the Innocence Project uh, stepped in, which uh, yeah, if, only, if only... Ha, I asked uh, Derek, he didn't know. Do you know how your sister-in-law found out about the Innocence Project of Florida? Um, she had read an article that... Um, there's a group of people that had gotten together, and they were working on another case um, about someone else who was um, wrongly convicted. And she said, hey, there may be something we can do to help Derek as well. And we were doubtful because the Innocent Project had just uh, pretty much started um, their process then. And we didn't have any hope. We, we didn't know. We were people looking, grasping at that needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. The innocent, the innocence project began in 2003, so the contact with the, them for Derek was not too many years later. So you're right; it was really at the beginning. That's right. Um, now you you mentioned the hardship of visiting because he was so far away, and we 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 know that that often happens that people are moved around from place to place and hundreds of miles away. So, so the, the visiting was, was very minimal then because of the, um, the distance. So you never, you never did uh, visit him, right? That is correct. I did not. And if you go back and look at um, his history, you'll see that Derek refused received very few visits from the family because he was so far away. We are not a wealthy family, so when you place a person that's incarcerated that far away from home, it is hard to visit. My grandmother doesn't drive. Not everyone had a vehicle at that time. No, not everyone had the financial means to put gas in the car and to travel um, to go this, that distance to, um, to see him. We wanted to see him. Unfortunately, it just was pretty much, I want to say, close to almost impossible. Right. Yeah, I I live around the corner uh, when I'm in New York from a maximum security prison for 2,400 men. And when I get there to visit uh, some of the men that I used to teach there, I see vans coming from New York City with mothers and their children in those vans. I'm sure they left the city at five o'clock in the morning. It takes at least two, two and a half hours. So it's not only expensive, it's exhausting. And uh, then they, they go back the same day. But uh, with Derek, he was at least, what would you say, about three hours away from Bradenton, the prison in Daytona? Yes, ma'am, but that was not the, his first stop. Oh. No, ma'am, he was further away than that. Oh, I didn't realize that. Where was he at first? Um, I'm, I'm not clear on the location, but it was, that was not his first stop. That wasn't. So he was even farther away, what you're saying. Yeah. Um, From what I recall, he was further away. I'll have to verify that with him, but I'm almost sure he was further away. Yeah. And when he got to um, Daytona, that was about three hours away. But then you have to also remember that um, to take a long trip, you got to have food, 
you got to have the monetary monies for um, the gas. Um, You also have to go and come back within a reasonable time. So it it was just not convenient um, nor affordable at the time. Right. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, Now, um, you work with children in the Manatee school system. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, what what your job is for the Manatee schools. Um, I do attendance. Um, I'm not an attendance clerk. What I do is I monitor chronic um, tier three level students who um, are not in school for whatever reason. And I try to work with the parents, uh, with um, family engagement, communicating with parents, um, educating them on the importance of education um, to help our students to be successful, make good career choices, um, make good choices in life, um, set a foundation um, with education so that the education, if you're scheduled to come to work, you're scheduled to come to school, then all of that ties in to help our children be successful and set a routine pattern for life to be successful. I see. And in, in your, do you actually have contact with the children themselves? Um, yes, ma'am. I have contact with the children. I have contact with the parents. I reach out to um, business partners and community partners to assist the parents because it could be an issue where the parents just can't afford to go to the laundromat. And that's within walking distance because some of my parents have to walk or put shopping carts to get to the laundromat. It may be an issue where um, my parents don't have a job. Uh, They don't have adequate transportation. Um, They don't have um, hygiene products to take care of themselves. So it is a very difficult struggle for some of our families right now. Right. Now, in in your work, and you've been doing this for quite some time, have you uh, ever come across families where there is a parent behind bars? Um, yes, ma'am. I do come across parents. Um, we have, uh, MC County has guidance counselors and social workers who um, meet and counsel students on mental health as well as um, children who have parents who are incarcerated because that is a a, a very uh, terrifying situation for a young child to be in, to have a parent, a loving parent there to support them, and then they have absolutely nothing. They go from 100 to zero in less than 24 hours. Right. That's right. And is there any support for those children coming from the school system? Yes, ma'am, we do. We have... um, a program called Project Heart. Uh, we also have um, different uh, programs within the community that um, assist the parents. Uh, we have uh, teachers and staff members that will donate out of their own um, financial means to support and help a family that's in crisis or that's in need. I see. Um, and often economics play a very large part because if that parent who's now in prison was working, there goes that income, correct? That is, that is correct. And you also have to remember that once the parent comes out of incarceration, it is hard for that person to get a job because you put on an application, the, one of the questions is, have you ever committed a crime? You That's put right. on that application, yes, I've committed a crime, then they're not going to want to hire you. Even though you may have made one uh, bad choice in your life, so I constantly have to be reminded that some, we all make mistakes, okay? 
no one's perfect, but you shouldn't be held um, at large for that mistake for the rest of your life. At That's some right. point in time, someone could give you a chance. That's correct. Or they need to rehabilitate you and show you that change or talk to you and say, hey, maybe you should do this instead of that. Or here's another way to do that. Or explain why this is so wrong. Yeah, I think um, Derek was very, very fortunate in working for Honeycomb. Um, they have been so supportive. But not every business is as welcoming to hire someone who had been in prison, even though he was not guilty. Uh, it's still, you know, how does he account for the 18-year gap? Uh, it, it, do, it almost doesn't matter if you were there in prison for a reason or you were not. And as Derek talked about the lack of compensation for him, uh, the, the compensation bill here in Florida demands that you don't have a prior felony on your record. And uh, if you do, they will not pay you anything if you've been in prison wrongly convicted. So it's a very difficult uh, situation. Um, after the innocent, well, to, go ahead. I'm sorry. You mind? I want to intervene because you have to remember, 18 years of someone's life is a lifetime to some people because some people never make it there. But when Derek left, we had a rotary dial telephone. When Derek came home, we had right. cell phones. <laughs> That's right. Okay. When we had uh, when Derek came home and we went to pick him up and we came back into town, we had there was a um, it was a McDonald's and a Burger King and a Wendy's. Now we have a Rallies and a Chili's and a Checkers. I mean, we have all these different things. And we went from a dirt road to a paved street. Hmm. So his mind has to catch up 18 years' worth of time. That's and right. And then in bondage and hostage um, where your mind can't develop and grow. So now you're out and you're into this world. So compensation does not necessarily mean it has to be monetary, but compensation definitely needs to happen to rehabilitate a person, not only their mind, but their spirit and their body physically. That's true. He, he's, he's, this mental health, we're having people now who are mentally can't survive and cope, they're killing themselves, but that mental capacity has to be exhorted back into him. That's right. The things that he's seeing now compared to what he left, the world is completely and utterly different. It's completely different is right. That's true. Um, so we, we only have a few minutes left. Um, what would you say, besides what you've already said, was the most challenging aspect of Derek's return after 18 years in prison? Pretty much, did you sum that up, would you say? Just to sum it up, I would say that regardless of what a person has done, they are still human and that he is a person. He deserves a fair chance at life to be rehabilitated and to be compensated for what has been done to him. Regardless of what his past life was, they made a mistake. If I made a mistake, then they will deal with me. So I think that they should be dealt with for the mistake that they made, and they should help him to further himself to get to where he needs to be. You can't That's... give my uncle back those 18 years. You can't give him back his father who died while he was incarcerated, and he could not come and see his father. He could not embrace him and show him love at that time. And his father was ill and an older man and not able to come to see him. No one can give my uncle that back. 
No. There's nothing they can say to replace that, but they can help him to be a better man and guide him and protect him right now. That's true. But the state doesn't feel they have that responsibility, but the Innocence Project of Florida does, right? Yeah, so. That is absolutely correct. We are truly thankful for all the Innocence Project has done because not only did they help him, they gave him the mental stability he needed. When he's down and when he was going through a moment, they will be there to coach him and help him through. We, they, all people need that. All those yeah, people that are sure. incarcerated. That's true. Even even if you went to prison for a crime that you did commit, they all there is a huge adjustment in coming back regardless. And especially when there is a lot of time that has gone by, as in Derek's case. Well, I thank you to Wanda for joining me today on the program and sharing your thoughts and perspective from as a family member watching what happened. And uh, I do appreciate your uh, your thoughts and your feelings. And I agree with everything that you've said. So thank you once again for joining us today on Pursuing Justice. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye now. You too. Now that we have spoken to a fam a, a family, oh, now that we've spoken to a family member, of uh, Derek Williams and my listeners have gotten a little perspective on how difficult it was for the family, most particularly because Derek was so far away. I, I didn't realize that he was even farther away in the beginning, at the beginning of his incarceration, and then was moved to Daytona Beach, which is certainly over three hours drive from where he lives right now in Bradenton. So how very, very sad to hear um, Tawanda say that he really did not get the visits that he should have gotten, that family members, a parent who was ill, uh, that he could not see them. Um, these are the things, these are the many, many things that occur while someone is locked up. Again, whether they are guilty or not guilty, these things occur, but it's even sadder when a person should not be in prison in the first place. So in the bit of time remaining today, what I would like to talk a little bit about is the impact of a parent, or it doesn't necessarily have to be a parent. It can be a sibling, can be an uncle or a, a cousin, anyone who is in prison from the family uh, and suddenly is gone. There are 5 million children in the United States that have a parent currently or previously incarcerated. Half of the people who are in prison at this time are parents. In the 1970s, that number was 350,000 children, that is, who have a parent behind bars. What a tremendous increase that is from uh, 1970s. So what would you think would be the negative impacts of a parent who's locked up? There are many. There's a higher rate of attention deficit disorders. There's a higher rate of behavior problems in school and, of course, at home. There's a higher rate of speech and language delays a higher rate of asthma, obesity, depression, and anxiety. And there is poverty and homelessness 
due in large part to a loss of income. Suddenly, the parent who was working is gone, and who knows when they're going to come back. There's instability in terms of where the family lives. Often they move place to place, and sometimes children end up in foster care. So things were stable and reliable, and then all of a sudden everything is upended. There is a risk for trauma or toxic stress. The whole issue of bonding or attachment um, has a, a tremendous impact. Again, if a child, say, is very close to a mother, we don't often talk about women in prison, but many, many women in prison are mothers, and suddenly that mother is gone. What happens to the whole issue of bonding? There's guilt on the child's part, thinking maybe I had something to do with this. Maybe I caused this. So at school, um, that that is a, a place where a child with a parent in prison has a great, great deal of shame about admitting that there is a parent gone and that they are in prison. So they very often keep that to themselves and they don't tell anybody. And in a future podcast, I'm going to be inviting uh, a woman and the students uh, in her club. She started a club called POPS, P-O-P-S, Pain of the Prison System. And it was for children. These are not really children. They are high school students. It is for high school students that have someone they love in prison. And it is a safe space to be able to share that secret with other students. So they will be coming on our program um, to share what, what they have created in creating this club. And it's, it's beginning to spread across the country thanks to um, the woman who founded this club. So that's in future. If a child gets in trouble at school, we know sometimes they are punished by being removed from school. And sometimes the cycle of prison begins here where a child might end up in juvenile detention for a very minor offense. We call this the school to prison pipeline. Um, so that that is something to be very aware of that the cycle can begin with something quite minor. Studies show that the incarceration of a parent is more traumatic than even the death of a parent or even divorce. Now, um, our guest, previous guest, talked about visiting uh, and how very challenging it is. Even if the prison is not that far away, um, visiting a parent behind bars is never easy. Prisoners are moved, as we said, from place to place all over the state. The distance can be 500 miles or it can even be over 100 miles. Um, in a visiting room, sometimes uh, there is no air conditioning. It's not very private. It's not very quiet. There's not a place to play, maybe a very small area. Um, and there are machines with sandwiches and drinks. But it's certainly not the same as being together at home. And sometimes the visit is just two hours, could be six hours, you know, a, a whole afternoon, a morning and an afternoon. But a small children in a situation like this is very, very challenging. 
Children worry about so many things, but they don't always give voice to those worries. Will they see the parent again? Why is the parent in prison? Who will take care of me? So there are many, many issues um, about a parent in uh, a family member, I should say, who is um, has been sent away. So what what um, is happening in some prisons in the country is, and there are very, very few of them now, is that they can have a weekend in a trailer together. And that was more widespread years ago. It began in Mississippi in 1918 um, with married couples only, but now there are what they call family visitation programs in other states. But what's very sad for um, me to have read about these family visits where they can spend the weekend together is now only four states have these programs for families. Wouldn't you think that it would be encouraged to have a trailer, they call it a trailer visit sometimes, um, and they spend two nights together as a family. But unfortunately, money is an issue and the prison system will say, well, it's just too expensive. But if, if families stay together with visits, that we know that it helps recidivism, um, brings down violence in the prison because it's something to look forward to. And wouldn't you think that the prison system would encourage something like this, but uh, they they really don't. And I, I want to close with just a few statistics. One in every nine African-American children have a parent in prison. One in every 28 Hispanic children have a parent in prison. And one in 57 Caucasian children have um, a parent in prison. So I, I hope that I have um, opened your eyes to the impact uh, of what happens in uh, a family when a, a, a key parent goes away. It is, it is a long-lasting kind of impact. It doesn't necessarily end when the parent comes home. As our, our former guest said, um, it, it's a different world that the parent left and a different world that they have come home to. So I hope you will stay tuned because our next guest for the next podcast is our full-time social worker at the Innocence Project of Florida that really um, is a an angel to many, many of our exonerees. So stay tuned for that. And again, uh, please write me with your thoughts and your ideas and comments at pursuing.justice5 at gmail.com. And thanks for spending some time with us today. We really do appreciate it. And I hope you'll join us next time for Pursuing Justice.